Let's turn our Bibles to Psalm 1. I don't know um, if you've ever read the history of why during the Reformation, the church started to hold uh, two services on Sundays, one in the morning and one in the evening. I, I mean, if you have read that story before, they had many reasons, but, well, wait, first, how many of you have read that story before of how the church started, you know, morning and evening services? Oh, okay. Maybe that's why you guys handle evening services this way. So one of the reasons, there were many reasons that they put forward. Um, in fact, after they were done with the arguments, here's what the conclusion was. In fact, the history has it that it was the members that complained against the elders and pastors that they were not getting enough of preaching from them. And so they were told to go back and ensure that in their churches that their pastors gave them two services. But one of the arguments, they used this everyday example, you know, where they say, um, when you wash something once, it's clean, but when you wash it twice, then it's very clean. And so they say that when you've gone through that when you've gone through the entire week and then you've mingled and handled all sorts of things, that when you come on Sunday, the morning service is like the first cleansing. So in the morning service, you are still here and there, and you know, this cleansing here and there, and that the evening service is really where you know the full cleansing is. And so people started to look forward so much to the evening services, uh, so that in the morning service, they come expectant, they received a lot from God, but sort of the evening service was like the climax, you know, like the second washing and full washing. So people didn't used to miss the evening services because that was the mentality they had about morning and evening service. But I just thought to share that with you. Let's read Psalm 1. I'll read the entire chapter. So turn to uh, Psalm 1. Um, I'll use the NAS version, but I know most of you have the ESV anyway, but it's sort of similar. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruits in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's bow our heads. Let me say a little prayer. Heavenly Father, we've come here this evening, and we pray that your word will come to us, and as it comes to us, that it would dispel all ignorance, all stubbornness, all anxieties, all coldness from our lives. We pray that our reasoning, our will, our affections will all be affected positively by our time together this evening. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Okay, so um, 
My focus this evening, it's a short time that we spent together, will be on verse 2. And I've titled it Christian Meditation, but sort of like an introduction to Christian Meditation. What I intend to do this evening is I, I, I want to place meditation in its rightful place amongst Christian disciplines and uh, Christian habits. Uh, it's sort of lost uh, to most of us, and I just thought that it would be interesting to sort of, in the way the Protestants will use the word, raise your mind to this habit, raise your mind to this discipline. So I'll focus on verse 2, and verse 2 simply says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. But we've been taught very well that it is always good to look at the context in which a verse exists, and the context in which verse 2 exists be verse 1. And while I would love to spend time explaining verse 1, Pastor Abuti did that like two weeks or three weeks ago. I think he even spent two weeks explaining the entire psalm. So I'm just, just for the sake of context, I would mention, or I would just sort of review, because I know you guys can remember. I mean, it's just two weeks ago, I think three weeks ago. <laughs> so I'm sure you guys can remember. So I'll just try and remind you what he said about verse one. Of course, I'll, I'll add some comments to it. Then we can now move to verse two. All I'm just gonna do in verse two is sort of uh, define what it is, and then try and tell you why you should meditate, even though I'm not going to explain how you should. Maybe another time when we spend uh, an evening together like this, um, if God wills, I'll be able to do that. Okay, so now let's look at the structure of the verse, verse one. So you have to look at the verse itself. When I say let's look at the verse, then I'm hoping that you look into the Bible. So the verse of verse one says, how blessed from the NES, I think the NES just says blessed, but it says, how blessed is the man who doesn't walk, or who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seats of scoffers. Now, for, that, for you to understand verse 1, you need to understand that the word blessed in the ESV, or how blessed, is, is an interjection. I don't know how many of you can still remember your parts of speech. It's an interjection, you know, so... Well, if you understand pastor speech, I'm not here to teach you English, but it's an interjection. And once you realize that the word how blessed or the word blessed, whatever translation you're using is an interjection, then it, it helps you start to wonder what exactly was the psalmist contemplating on? Because usually when you start your sentence with an interjection, it, it is because a contemplation or an observation preceded the interjection. I don't know if you get what I'm saying. So usually, you know how people, so, so imagine if you met someone and then he started his sentence with, for goodness sake. For goodness sake is not really how you start a sentence, is it? It, it must mean that there's something that happened that you observed that you are starting a whole discourse with for goodness sake. Are you following me? Yeah. So now, the psalmist doesn't tell us what he is contemplating on or what he observed, but the verse itself gives us an insight into what he may have been thinking. And here's my own guess. I think he's, he's, observing, the, he's observing the topic of happiness or blessedness. And in observing it, I, I think he focuses on a man, 
And many things came to his mind. But verse 1 tells us that two things may have struck most in his mind. And first will be what he found out happiness was or blessedness. So I'm using that word, in, you know, I'm interchanging the words. What he found out that it was shocked him. But I think what shocked him more was the means by which that blessedness came. So, yes, the nature of the blessing itself, and that's one of the things that will surprise most of us when we study the Bible, that when the Bible talks about blessedness or talks about happiness, isn't, it isn't even talking about what you think it is. So there's a shock that you find out. For instance, when you read the Psalms, and then the Psalmist will tell you that the person that is blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Are you following me? So if, if you were going to study the word blessed or study this you know, what is blessing or what is happiness? And then you now stumble upon forgiveness of sins. First of all, it shocks you that that is the nature or that's how the Bible describes it. But then when you find out the means, then you are stunned. And then you'll be like the psalmist that you start an entire discourse is how blessed. Are you following this verse now? So he comes and he says, How blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And I guess to verse 2 and then to verse 3 and it continues. And then he ends his psalm in the way he ends it. Now, you know, you know that in the world, um, godly people, I, if, I, if I said to you now that mention five really happy people that you know. You know, people that are blessed on every kinds of level. My guess is, especially you guys want to be overtly spiritual, I, I, I don't think, you know, all those spirit, spirit people would enter your first five, your, your, your first five names. Because there's a way that the world tells us that to be godly is sort of to be a cute joy. You know, that there's a sort of melancholy life that godliness brings. Are you following me? So I think that the psalmist, when he observed the life of the godly, discovered that it was entirely opposite to what he thought. And that true happiness and true blessedness was with the godly people. And not only that he found out that godly people were happy, but he found out that only godly people were happy. And that nobody outside this group is truly ever happy. And what shocked him the most is the means, like the, the instrumental cause by which this happiness came to this person. Now, the world tells us, and I think you guys will agree with me, if I said that, tell me what it means to be truly happy. Now, I know if I ask you in the context of this holy place, you guys will start changing and they start mentioning very spiritual things. But I think if I find you in your natural habitat, like in your house, or say at work, and I ask you that, what do you think true happiness is? Even if you mention to believe in Jesus Christ, I think the next thing you're going to mention will be outside that. Like, I think you start to mention things like, uh, a man is truly happy when he maybe looks happy or he has a happy home, or 
has happy children, has a beautiful wife. You know, there's a way that the world tells us happiness is. And I know that you guys believe it because of how you pursue happiness as well. Because if you believe what the psalmist believe, then your pursuit of happiness will be different from what you're currently doing. Because here's what the psalmist will do. The psalmist will describe five things, and that's what he does from verse 1 to 2. He describes five ways to know a truly happy person. So that's like top five lists. And yet, all of the things that would enter our list isn't there at all. And I think that if he was given more time, if this man lists up to 10, none of what we think happiness is today will enter that list. So here's what I want, you, uh, want us to do together. Look at the five things that he mentions in his description of what true happiness looks like. Now, in fact, and I think Pastor Butu mentioned it, the word blessed there in the Hebrew appears as plural. So it means that what the psalmist was saying in this, in being wild, by the way, he was wild writing this, is that how, that is, behold the many blessings or the many happinesses or the many blessednesses that is in a man, and then he mentions the first thing. So the first way he describes it is that this man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Are you following him? Number two, he doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Three, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Four, he delights in the law of the Lord. Five, he meditates on it day and night. And then he gets to Verse 3, that is common to everybody, he says, he will be like a tree firmly planted by rivers of water. Are you seeing what he's doing there? So we, we will all agree that when a tree is firmly planted by streams of water, it is really happy and it's really blessed. And yet he said, behold the blessings of the man. So he puts the man as the subject and then lists these five ways to describe this man, that is, five ways that you can observe his life. Don't forget, I said he is observing the man from the outside. Are you following? So these are five observable things in this man. And so the psalmist by the Spirit of God lists these things to us. So we'll just look at each one. My focus is on meditation, you remember? But I'm trying to help you to link verse 1 to verse 2. That's why I'm spending time in verse 1. So look at the first one. So a man is truly blessed when he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Or, let's use a word we are more familiar with. A man is truly happy when he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Are you following the psalmist? I know it's evening, but I want to be sure that you guys are following. So you have to respond, then I'll know that you guys are following. Are you following the psalmist? Okay, good. Now, the word wicked, by the way, is sort of lost to us. We, we don't call anybody wicked, except the person is, the person is really, really wicked. But wicked in this, in this psalm just means that the person is against God in every way possible. So in this age, what this would mean is that the man that does not walk in the counsel of the society at large, because we we'll agree that the society at large is wicked, right? 
So a man that doesn't work in the council of the society at large starts to describe a happy person. Are you following? So the question that you will pose is what does not working in the council of the society at large would look like? First of all, what is the council of the society at large for you not even working in it? And there are many. And Pastor Brooks sort of expounded on this. He mentioned many things. Um, he mentioned gossip, for instance. I mean, gossip is now mainstream. I mean, there are gossip columns, right? And we read, we read gossip blogs. Some of you wake up in the morning to open a gossip website, right? So, so that gossip is now mainstream so that you can practice it in your own life. Are you following? So if I asked you what gossip is now, you probably not know what it means because it's mainstream and you are currently working in it. Anger, for instance, is another thing. There's a, there's a different way the Bible, uh, sorry, the world describes anger now. You know, it, it, they describe it as that, that unsolicited rage. Meanwhile, the Bible just says that once, once you are angry at, about anything that is not righteous, then it is sinful anger. And the Bible condemns all forms of anger. Are, are, you, are you guys understanding what the psalmist is doing here? So he's saying that truly happy people do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And there are many counsels of the wicked that we find today. For instance, it's now quite, and I think Pastor Booth mentioned it, it's quite mainstream now for people to cohabit without marriage. It's not, it's not even a big deal, is it? I mean, in the world. And you find some Christians doing it because it has been impressed upon their hearts so much that it's not a big deal. In fact, some Christians will say, okay, you know what, I agree, cohabiting is bad, but what, how they will define cohabitation will be if someone is living for, with you maybe like a month, but if someone lives, or if someone sleeps over in your place one night, then that's not cohabitation, so, you know. So, so are, you, are, are you seeing what, what is happening? So, more than you think, it is actually easy these days to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Probably most of the things you walk in are actually counsels of the wicked, but you just don't know any longer. And the reason you don't know any longer is the second thing it says here, nor stand in the path of sinners. Because, don't forget, Pastor Booth said it's progressive. So you've so much, you know, uh, uh, walked, uh, uh, sorry, you've so much walked in the counsel of the wicked that you are now standing in the path of sinners. That is, you are now quite comfortable in whatever sin it is. You flare up easily, you are short-fused, and then the world has told you that being short-fused is not a sin. It's just, it's just like a nature problem. It's who you are. That some people are not short-fused, you know. I remember when I, in, in the university back then, they came up with these four, uh, I don't know what they called it. One was sanguine. And the other one was uh, melancholy, and then I, I can't remember what. Yes, thank you. It was called what? Four words. Ten promises. Thank you. Ten promises is what I'm looking for. Ten promises, right? So the world has told us now that you can excuse some of your sinful behaviors by just saying it's ten promises. So the reason, for instance, that Eliezer is patient is ten promises, not because he's walking by the Holy Spirit, so that you are not convicted by any form of sin. Are, are you following? So what has happened is that in the beginning, you were quite 
worried about your anger issues, but then you started to listen to the counsel of the wicked, that is the counsel of society at large, and then you started to say, oh, it's not a big deal. So now, you are now standing in the path. So you are now very comfortable. So you are no longer afraid. You even flare up in the church. So before, you used to be only at home, but now, since it's a temperament issue, are you, are you following what's happening here? Now, don't forget, this is a description of a, of a happy person. So, you can start to realize if you are truly happy. So, because truly happy people are godly people. That is the point of this psalm. That to be happy is not to possess things. To be happy is not even to have the things that God actually encourages, like family. True happiness is in godliness. And the last one that the psalmist says is sitting in the seat of scoffers. Now, that's actually interesting. I, I still think it's the, again, it's progressive. So to the psalmist, this is like the height. And do you know how this plays out in our lives? Now, you have become so accustomed to sin that it's, it started, I mean, you know it's like steps, progressive. Are you following? It started with words. Okay, see, you're not following. It, started with, it starts with words. Good. You walk in the counsel of the wicked. Then you progress towards standing. Good. Now you are where now? You are sitting down in the seat of scoffers. So here's how this looks like. So someone new, for instance, enters the church and the person thinks gossip is a sin. But because, so for instance, if we're a gossiping church, you know, you know we don't know that we're gossiping. Because it's mainstream. Do you understand? So someone new comes into the church and then he sees you guys got, you know, sitting around. He thinks that you guys are, you know, are trying to maybe edify yourself. So he joins the group and sees that you're talking about someone. And so he's wondering, why are we gossiping? So he steps back and guess what? You're upset. Like, okay, calm down now. Like, so you're not calling what? You are still new. You are still growing. Do you know what you're doing? You are scoffing. You are now a scoffer. You are so upset by other people's righteousness that you scoff at the idea that someone is disciplined and godly. At least in the ways that you are not godly. Are you following? So if, for instance, someone is, says his own discipline is that he doesn't watch TVs at all. When you see him, do you know what you say? Oh, you are still growing. Because in your own mind, you are so spiritual that you can be indisciplined. But he is disciplined, but you are a scoffer now. And you got here in steps that you continue to ignore. Because there was a time that you were still way back there where when you spent 30 minutes watching TV, you feel guilty like you're wasting time. But instead of you to listen to the convictions of the Holy Spirit, guess what you did? You emboldened your mind. You think that your problem is weak conscience, but what you were doing was snaring your conscience. Are you following what's happening? So you're like, nah, it's fine. And so you move to one hour. So now you can actually, some of you can sit down and watch an entire series. Because the world has told you that your time is yours. Which is another counsel of the wicked. Nobody's going to ask you about how you spend your time. You're an adult. But, but that's a lie. What the Bible tells us is that time in itself is given to you so that you'll be a steward of it 
and the person that you know that gives you the time that apportions the time to you one day will ask you how exactly you spent all of those seconds what is the chief end of man what is the chief end of man you guys don't know your catechism what is the chief end of man okay good how would a man glorify god if not with time i mean is there something outside of time that you exist in are you following so this is, or these are the things that, so you can see why the psalmist is, is, is wowed. That wait, so what, so, so the way to describe a happy person is not even the way I have been describing a happy person. A happy person is in pursuit of happiness through the godly means. He is so, he's so obsessed with godliness that is, is always pursuing godliness. And unlike what the world tells you, that kind of person is truly happy. Now, another thing that the world tells you is that all of these things that you're doing will matter where? In the year after, right? That is, in the eternity. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that there's a blessing here in living godly lives. Are you, are you following? So the psalmist says, how blessed or how happy is the one that does not, what's the first one? Walk in the counsel of the ungodly. What's the second one? Stand in the path of sinners. What's the third one? Now he mentions a fourth one. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Notice that the psalmist adds an affection to an action. It's important that you notice what he did there. He didn't just say that this happy person reads the Bible. Are you following? He says, instead, how you know him is that he delights, delights is, a, is, an, is an affection, right? So he says he delights in the word of God. Not just because most of you have removed affection from all of your Christian disciplines. So your devotion now is, is basically mechanic. It is, it is the right thing to do. To, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting you guys now. It's the right thing to do to wake up in the morning, to open your Bible, read it, pray, and then you have done what God requires. Now you can move on, you know, you can move on in the day to do your own thing. I mean, because you've given God his own thing. Of course, that is wrong in general, but especially in how you approach the reading of God's word. So most of you wonder why your devotion is not profitable. The psalmist says because you have no delight in what you're about to do. Because you've forgotten that when you read the Old Testament and then the Bible tells you that God sees the heart, you think that what that, that only applies to maybe when someone is lying. That it doesn't apply to Christian discipline. Are you following? That is. I may be disconnected from my prayer, but God will see answer it because I don't know what you think because God doesn't look at the heart in prayer. Or that in reading God's word, I do not need to be really interested or be delighted in it. God will still bless it anyway. But that's not what the Bible tells us, especially in how God acts. Because that statement, God sees the heart or God looks at the heart, covers everything in every sphere. Isn't, isn't that correct? Is that correct? 
Good. So that's why the psalmist says the fourth description is that he delights in the law of the Lord. And then the fifth is what? He meditates day and night. So now, remember I told you in the beginning that what I want to do is I just want to put meditation in its rightful place. Because I know that if we did a poll in the beginning and just said that, what are the godly things that would make you happy? Most of you will probably ascend to verse 1. That yes, uh, to be happy, you have to be godly now. I mean, everybody ascends to that. Everybody ascends to that. I have to pray. I have to read the word of God. But I don't think anybody would have mentioned meditation. So out of all of the Christian habits and disciplines, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit impressed upon the heart of the psalmist to put meditation. Now, don't forget, what he's doing is what? Describing a happy person. Are you following? So happy people, they don't walk in the council of the wicked. They don't sit, they don't stand in the path of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. They delight in the law of the Lord, but they also meditate on the word of God. It is right there. It is among the thought things that the psalmist lists for us. It is not, it's not a second grade hab habit of grace. It is right there at the top of the list. So it would mean that people that do not meditate, godly people that don't meditate are not happy people. That's what it means. But it is long forgotten. And by the way, here is how most of you define meditation. If I recall a verse, no, there's an English word for it. It's called what? What? Remembering. Remembering. It's, not, it's not the same. Even English will not agree with you. Now, before I define meditation, I, I want to give you a disclaimer. And the disclaimer is simple. The psalmist is not saying that these five things are the way to be blessed. That's not what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is describing what a happy person looks like. He's not telling you the way to happiness. And I think Basabutu really stayed on that. This is not how to be blessed. So I'm not saying that you, you go back home and I'll be like, yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been pursuing this happiness. So here are the five ways to be happy. For sure, he's describing the habits of happy people but he's not describing the means to be happy. The Bible already tells us that it is only in Christ. Whatever blessing that you're looking for is in Christ. Christ is the one that merits these blessings for us. So the Bible looks at these things in two broad categories, the merits and then the instrumental cause. I don't know any other English for instrumental cause. Instrumental cause is like means. Are you following? So you know how we know that we are saved by Christ, right? We know that it's Christ that saves us by his grace. You guys agree? But the Bible still talks a lot about faith. And it calls faith what? The means by which to be saved. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved through what? Through faith. 
by grace through faith. So the Bible has always seen these two broad categories when it's explaining something to us. That there is a, there is a cause for something and there is a means for something. So this is not the cause of blessing in anybody's life. If an unbeliever, for instance, sat down here and followed this line by line, you'll probably not end up in happiness. Are you following? To end, to be happy or to be blessed, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. Are you following? And then you can now live like this. Is that, is that clear to everybody? So this is not, this doesn't merit blessing for you. It is just that the way that God has done it, for instance, let us look at First Peter. First Peter 1. First Peter 1 15 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you know what Peter is doing here? See the structure of the verse. He says, the Holy One called you. So that is what? That is the cause itself. Then it still says what? Be holy in your behavior. Are you seeing that? So one comes before the other. The, the calling comes before the walking. Are you guys following? So the calling comes before the walking, and that is how we have to see these things. So don't come to some, someone and then say, oh, five ways to be happy, one. No, there's only one way to be happy. Believe in Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe in Christ for salvation. That is how to be blessed. But yet, the way that the Bible describes these things, and I have a quote here from Jerry Bridges, if you know him, he says that God uses these practices, that is, these habits, he uses them in our lives, not because we have earned his blessing, but because we have followed his ordained path of blessing. So what he's saying here is that God has set forth certain disciplines for us to practice in the pursuit of happiness. God has set forth some certain disciplines for us to pursue in Sorry, to practice in our pursuit of happiness. But the instrument, sorry, the, the meritorious cause of all blessings is who? Christ. But yet, God does not walk in obedience on our behalf. He commands us to walk in obedience. Is it clear in our minds now? Okay. So, what is meditation? So, I'll just define it. And then we'll close. I have, I have a um, definition here from Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson says that meditation is the soul's retiring of itself, that by serious and solemn thinking upon God, the soul may be raised up to heavenly affection. Thomas Hooker says that Meditation is a serious intention of the mind whereby we come to search out the truth and settle it effectively upon the heart. 
So meditation is not just remembering scripture. It's not just remembering what the preacher preached in the morning or he preached last week. It's not just going home and reading the notes. That's a good step, by the way. But it is a serious intention of the heart whereby you are setting out the truth so that you can settle it effectively upon your mind. So, here are the five things that you should take away from this definition. The first thing is that if you are going to meditate, you have to be deliberate about it. Psalm 1, verse 2 says, he meditates day and night. So there's a deliberate act. So the way you guys have morning devotions where you've set out a particular, well, I'm hoping you guys have devotions in the morning. You know, you set out the particular portion of your time in the morning where you read your Bible and you pray. The Bible also expects you to set out an actual time, a deliberate time to meditate upon the truth of the, of the Bible. The second thing is that God is always the object of meditation. God and his word. So meditation isn't something that you do, you know, where you're just supposed to sit down and just think upon, you know, just empty your mind. Christian meditation is not emptying of the mind. Christian meditation is filling up of the mind with God and his word. Psalm 63 verse 6 says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Psalm 143 verse 5 says, I remember the days of old, I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. That is Christian meditation. Just recalling to mind what God has said, the truth. For instance, when Brother Eliezer was preaching in the morning, he kept talking about who you are. That who are we? So meditation will look like you going through, or when Brother in the morning, in Bible study was talking about, uh, uh, sorry, Sunday was talking about uh, objective truth and subjective truth. So filling your mind about what the Bible talks about the objective truth of who a Christian is, of what Christ has done for you, for instance, will suffice for meditation. Are you following? Now, the third thing that the Bible wants us to know is that meditation has a frequency. It's every day. You know how you say read your Bible and pray every day? The Bible says, meditate every day. What does Joshua 1.8 say? What does Joshua 1.8 say? Well, you guys don't know Joshua 1.8? Let's turn to Joshua 1.8 so that we can read it together. Just go put it now. Just one eight. So we read it together. I'm sort of surprised you guys can quote Joshua one eight, but you're not quoting it now. Okay, let's let's read it together. Are you guys there? Joshua one eight. One two three go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Does this look clear to you about meditation? I mean, if, if this, is, this is where we stop, does this look clear about meditation? You're supposed to meditate how many times in a week? Every day. Every day. Now, I've already told you that meditation is not remembering. 
Now, the fifth thing I want you to go, to go with today is that not meditation, sorry, meditation is a command. So not meditating is a sin. Now, I know that some of you have bold consciences. I'm patronizing you by calling it bold. If you have bold consciences, you can go many days without reading the Bible. You can go many days without praying. You can go, you can skip church. You can, you can go a day without thinking about God. You can, you can, I don't know how you do it. I'm sure the Bible doesn't even know how you do it. But it is not enough that you have perfected reading the Bible and praying. Meditation is a command. Joshua 1 8 tells us, You shall meditate. Can you remember the times that the Bible used shall and shall not? Where? In the Ten Commandments, right? Yes. So it's a command from God. You have to meditate day and night. Day and night just means every day. It doesn't mean anymore. I mean, if you could do morning and evening, that's good as well. But it's just saying, No day must go by that you do not think upon the word of the Lord. It is a sin not to do that. Register it in your mind. But that's all you can remember. It's another thing if you take that now and don't meditate upon what we say here and then you forget. That's another matter entirely. But it is a command from God. Okay. I have this interesting quote from Thomas Watson. It has always helped me, so let me share it with you. So was asked one time, how do we know which of these disciplines are high up there and which ones are low? Again, not in any... You get the question, right? So we asked, so which one is the big ones and then which one are the ones that you're like, well, you know. So he says, he has a simple rule to determining the spiritual benefits of something, if it is high or if it's low. He says, the measure of the secret disinclination of my heart to eat tells me that it is of true benefit. I'll take that again. The measure of the secret disinclination that my heart has against that spiritual duty tells me that it is very beneficial. So think about it. It's the reason you are very disinclined to pray and very disinclined to read the Bible, and mostly disinclined to meditation, because it is spiritually beneficial. Remember Joshua 1 8, right? It says that is when you will make your way prosperous. Back to, back to someone. Blessings. The happy man meditates. He meditates on the word of God. That is, that is, that, that is exactly what it is. Now, there's this analogy that the Puritan, they had many analogies to describe meditation, but it's one I love the most. They said, I don't know if you understand it, but if you, if you, if you put a boat on, on water and you don't have paddles and you just leave it, it's sort of, it's called drifting. Are you guys following what's, it, it will just drift. So it could just go this way, or it could just go this way, or it could just, be going around in circles. But once you sort of put like a paddle, then you can move to a destination. So they say that meditation is 
putting paddles to your Bible reading. It is what drives the Bible reading to a goal. And the goal is what? Happiness is conformity to Christ. So if, you, if you've been wondering why you've been, this spiritual growth has been eluding you, the Bible tells you it's at the place of meditation. Because that's what gives it the goal. Al Martin gave a, a different example, and I think most of you understand this one. He said meditation is like bubble gum. That when bubble gum, if you buy a bubble gum, I don't know, do you guys know what bubble gum is? <laughs> okay. Bubble gum, if, you, if I hold the bubble gum here, do you think I can stick it to a wall and stick a paper to the wall? No, exactly. Except you chew the gum, it is not useful for any other thing. So you say meditation is that chewing of the gum where it is now useful for, for another thing. So when you read the Bible, it's just there. But meditation is what is like chewing on the gum so that it's now useful for sticking the truth of God's word to your mind. Are you following? All right, so let's close. I want to mention four things in closing. I'm trying to summarize everything I've said. I've been talking for a long time. So let me try and summarize everything I've said so far. First, meditation is not a suggestion from God. Meditation is a command. To not meditate is a sin. So yes, part of what Paul says the word of God does is that it unveils to us our sin. So if before today, you know, you had a book where you used to list your sin and you were, you only had three sins. I've added a fourth to it, and that's no meditation. So you need to know that if you live here and you put aside the practice of meditation, the Bible is not just saying that you will not be happy. The Bible is saying that you are sinning. Second thing I want to uh, let you know in summary is my own example of what meditation is. I've given you two examples, right? What's the first one? The boat analogy and then a bubblegum analogy. This third one, I like it the most, because, of course, because it's personal. How many of you have ever tried to juice an orange before? You know, squeeze an orange out so that you, know, you could drink the, the juice. If you've ever tried that before, the moment you, let's say you want to drink it in the evening, so you do it in the morning. If you come back to it in the evening, what do you notice? What do you notice? The, nobody has ever tried to juice orange. <laughs> really? You've never tried juicing before? Okay. Well, what happens is that <laughs> the, the real shaft, you know, the, the, the chaff, the, the, it goes down and then the, the, the liquid part comes up. Now, if you taste that liquid, it's very disgusting because it's nothing. So, in order to enjoy what you've done, you have to do what? You have to shake it and then drink it because then you are drinking the old juice. Else, it's just, I don't know, you are drinking some very sort of like lukewarm, tasteless water. Now, that's exactly what meditation is. Hearing God's word, reading God's word, is like trying to juice out something. Even studying, listening to podcasts, all of these things you guys do, it's like just trying to juice. Without meditation, what you're doing is the most useless thing. Because if you finish juicing and you leave it for a while, 
and you come back and you just drink the top, I don't know why you even try to juice. You have just, you have just squeezed the thing into your mouth to start with. So you have to understand the place that meditation holds in your spiritual life. This spiritual growth, this spiritual growth, blessings, happiness you've been searching for is in this discipline you have been ignoring. Number three, this is as an advice. Don't be afraid to get sidetracked when you are doing your morning devotion. Most of you are so bent on completing that portion of the day that if the Holy Spirit picks your interest in something, you'll be like, ah, I'll come back to it. Why? Because you want to finish. So that you think that you've done. No, no, that's, that's not the right way. Don't be afraid to get sidetracked. You're reading and then something jumps at you. Stay there, meditate. If, that's, if your time runs out, you have spent your time well. So don't be afraid to get sidetracked. Or it is the best way to use your time. Last, don't forget, this is the means, like the instrumental cause of blessings. So there's no other road that the Bible knows about. There's no shortcut. The happy man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. There is no other shortcut the Bible knows about. So, think upon these things, and then another time that we meet, would uh, sort of talk about how to practice meditation in our daily life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this time that we spent together. Our prayer now is that your Holy Spirit will take your word and plant it deep within us. There's a temptation that we live here and because of the many anxieties that in the country that we forget all these things. But we pray, O oh God, that you'll be kind to us and you help us to remember all these things and even start this practice this week. I will pray, O oh God, that you'll bless our efforts because there really isn't anything that we can do without your help. So pray that you'll pour out your help and grace upon our lives so that we can start to live in the way that pleases you. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.